Welcome to Holistic History, the fall of Celtic Britain. I'm Tony Frost, and this is episode 8. In episode 7, we recounted the growth of Anglo-Saxon power and their continued conquests, while the attempts to battle them by the British monarchs Urien and Owain were stymied by rebellious nobles and ruinous civil wars. This episode, we shall continue to recount the rise of the Anglo-Saxons in the late 6th and early 7th centuries. We'll begin with the most famous battle poem of the Britons, the Godothan. The original was composed by a famous bard. However, the only surviving copy is a very corrupt version in a book written in the late 13th century. Some of the lines are in the original Brythonic language, but others are in Old Welsh. This version is the work of two different unknown scribes, imaginatively called A and B by historians. Scribe A wrote 88 stanzas, and Scribe B added a further 35, some of which were alternate versions of the stanzas written by A. Some of the passages are difficult to translate, but the accepted idea is that a king of the Godolphin people, who lived in what is now southern Scotland, assembled an army made up of elite warriors. Scribe A said there were 300 warriors, while Scribe B said 363. According to one theory, this number only referred to the aristocrats, who were supported by an unknown number of commoners who were not recorded because they're not considered worth mentioning. Although the army was assembled by a Godolphin noble, it was open to any elite or warrior who wanted to join. At least one of these warriors seems to have been a Pict. The force met at Edinburgh and feasted for an entire year before setting out to fight the Anglo-Saxons. The Britons met the enemy at a place called Catreath, which may be modern Cutterick in northern Yorkshire. The Angle army was much larger, and the Britons were slaughtered. According to Scribe A, only one British warrior survived, but Scribe B said it was three. Although the battle was very famous among the Britons, and the poem was mentioned in several medieval Welsh works, it's impossible to gauge the impact of the battle because it can't be accurately dated. Estimates range from circa 570 to circa 600. Whenever it was, it probably weakened the Godolphin people beyond their ability to recover. And this is why many people believe the battle was circa 600, as the Godolphin were conquered around that time. Before looking at the reigns of the monarchs of the Britons, we'll examine the rivalries for power among the Anglo-Saxons. Last episode, we recounted the information on Ethelbert I of Kent, who was High King or Bretwalda of the Anglo-Saxons. It should be noted that he introduced a law code that would influence later law codes and was itself influenced by that of the Franks. One of its most important aspects was that it did away with paying fines in kind in favor of coins. He also established a mint to print these coins. It was the first mint among the Anglo-Saxons. Ethelbert died in 616. The mantle of Bretwalda then passed to his chief rival, Redwald of East Anglia. Redwald was able to exert dominance of Essex, which had been a vassal state of Kent. Redwald was noted for being wealthy, powerful, and crafty. Religiously, he famously hedged his bets by building a temple that included an altar to Wotan, the Anglo-Saxon version of Odin, and an altar to the Christian gods, side by side. Redwald died circa 625, and many people believe that the famous burial at Sutton Hoo was his grave, although that cannot be verified. Now we shall turn to the Britons. The monarch Owain was killed in a civil war circa 595. It is possible that the central government fell at this point. However, the theory we're following here is that the central government continued, although in a much weakened state. If this is true, then the new monarch was Owain's cousin, Murig. 
Murig had inherited the province of Gwent in southeastern Wales. His father, Tudrig, had abdicated because he had decided to join the clergy. However, he came out of retirement because he had a dream that if he joined Murig in battle against the Anglo-Saxons, then not only would they win a great victory, but there would be thirty years of peace. This dream only partially came true. Murig and Tudrig did defeat the Anglo-Saxon Bretwald Caolin at Tintern in 584, but there was no peace. Tudrig was not the only noble connected to Murig to abdicate to join the church. Cadac, later Saint Cadac, never wanted to rule in the first place. Perhaps inspired by Tudrig's example, he also gave up his province and left it to Murig. Murig married into the family that governed the province of Gower, and used his wife's claim as a justification to annex that province. He then took advantage of the fact that the noble that ruled a neighboring province had died with no heir to annex that province too. Then he used the resources he had accumulated to conquer Diffid. This gave him control over all of southern Wales. The interpretation we're following is that Murig was the monarch of the central government, and that he embarked upon this policy of annexation and conquest in order to strengthen his own position, so that he would not suffer the same fate as his uncle, Urien, or cousin Owain, both of whom were killed by rebellious vassals. Murig died circa 615, apparently from natural causes. This made him the first monarch of the Britons to avoid meeting a violent death since Melguin had died of the plague in 547. We think that Murig was succeeded as monarch by Cadwallon of Gwynedd. The story of Cadwallon indicates that the central government ceased to exist temporarily since Cadwallon was deposed and forced to flee into exile to Ireland for seven years. Cadwallon's exile was caused by the Anglo-Saxon king Edwin of Northumbria and is explained here as an interregnum because on his return from exile the central government again began to function. Northumbria had been created by Ethelfrith of Bernicia. Early in his reign he had taken the territory of Godothan, probably after the battle mentioned earlier in this episode. This brought him into contact with the Scots in their kingdom of Delriada. There was a brief war that ended with an Angle victory, but no conquest of territory. Ethelfrith was content with a peace treaty that secured his northern border. He then invaded another Anglo-Saxon kingdom called Dira. He conquered that, but the royal family escaped into exile. Northumbria then covered all of the northeast from the Humber River to the Highlands and as far inland as the Pennine Mountains. Prince Edwin of Dira fled into exile to Gwynedd. Ethelfrith attacked the Britons and captured Chester. Edwin then fled to the court of the Anglo-Saxon Britwalda, Redwald of East Anglia. He was the only other king strong enough to stand up to Ethelfrith. The king of Northumbria, Ethelfrith, was killed in battle, and Redwald installed Edwin in his place. If Redwald thought Edwin would be a complacent vassal, he was mistaken. But no showdown ever took place between the two men, as Redwald died of natural causes. Edwin wanted to be the undisputed ruler of Britain. He set out on a career of conquest, which led him to overrun Elmet, a British province in what is now western Yorkshire. He then built a fleet and extended his rule over the Mavanian Isle, that is Man and Anglesey. This brought him into direct conflict with Cadwallon, who was based in Gwynedd, in northern Wales. Edwin invaded Gwynedd, forcing Cadwallon into exile in Ireland. Edwin converted to Christianity in 626, and this led to a complete change in his personality. He gave up his campaigns of conquest and tried to reconcile with his enemies. Cadwallon was even allowed to return from exile and was restored to his position as ruler of Gwynedd, but as a vassal. This proved to be a naive mistake on Edwin's part. The Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Mercia had been founded circa 585. By the 620s, it covered much of what is now central England. Its ruler, Penda, was very ambitious. 
He followed a policy of good relations with the Britons while concentrating on gaining dominance over his fellow Anglo-Saxons in order to make himself Bretwalda. Penda concluded a treaty with Cadwallon. The ensuing war was quite fierce. Welsh sources say that Cadwallon fought 14 battles and 60 skirmishes. In 633, Cadwallon and Penda won the Battle of Hatfield Chase. Edwin was killed and Northumbria once again divided into the two kingdoms of Bernicia and Deira. Penda concentrated on attacking the other Anglo-Saxon kings south of the Humber, while Cadwallon began retaking lands in the north. According to the English historian Bede, Cadwallon was a psychopath who was intent on what we would now call ethnic cleansing. Modern researchers do not take this portrayal at face value. Bede lived about a hundred years later and was a Northumbrian, so he was hardly an unbiased source. Cadwallon defeated and killed Edwin's successors, Enfrith and Osric, giving him Deira. Bernicia accepted Oswald as king. He was the son of Athelfrith, the man who had created Northumbria. Oswald ambushed Cadwallon at Havenfield near Hadrian's Wall. The Britons were soundly defeated and Cadwallon was killed. This was only one or two years after his greatest victory at Hatfield. Hatfield Chase had been the greatest victory the Britons had won over the Anglo-Saxons since Arthur's victory at Baden Hill roughly 130 years earlier. But the victory had been short-lived and the lands Cadwallon had recovered were soon lost again. This was to prove to be the last chance the Britons had to turn the tide. From this point onward, the Anglo-Saxon victory was only a matter of time. Summing up, it's possible that the central government fell in the late 5th century, but the idea, we believe, is that some semblance of it survived, but in a much weakened state. Murig concentrated on building up his own power base and battled the Anglo-Saxons only when he was attacked. Cadwallon was forced into exile, but returned and made a valiant but ultimately failed effort to recover lost lands. The Anglo-Saxons went through major changes, such as introducing new laws and expanding the conversions to Christianity, and began to transition from Germanic invaders into the English. Join us next time for our final episode as we examine the reigns of the last two monarchs of the Britons and the completion of the Anglo-Saxon conquest. I'm Tony Frost, and this has been Holistic History, The Fall of Celtic Britain, Episode 8. Until next time, I hope you stay safe.